You don't get paid for shipping security, and that's a problem. In our thirst for developing the newest technologies, our business practices have enabled and opened huge gaps in our product and data security. If it seems like these cyber attacks are increasing, it's because they are. And it's a business problem, not a cybersecurity problem. We keep hearing of new technologies such as AI that are going to further enable cybersecurity, but our experts are skeptical. The human without the suit is weak. The suit without the human is dumb. AI, machine learning, these different computer learning things that we've got to work with now in, in cybersecurity and right across the board, they're levers. They're not a replacement, in my mind, for human intelligence. If and when that happens, we're going to be worried about Skynet, not these conversations. And I'm going to be thinking about how to hack that stuff to make sure that humans stay safe. On this episode of IT Visionaries, we explore the impact AI and technology are having on society and cybersecurity with Casey Ellis, the founder and CTO of BugCrowd, and Malcolm Harkins, a cybersecurity advisor, coach, and board member. The two discuss why you'll never be able to eliminate risk and why the lack of financial incentives is leaving most companies vulnerable to nefarious attacks. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the world's most trusted low-code platform. Enhance trust, compliance, and governance across all your apps with Salesforce security. Learn more at salesforce.com slash data security. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today, we're continuing our security series with Casey Ellis and Malcolm Harkins. This topic is going to be about the impact of AI and technology on society and cybersecurity. But, you know, I do these gentlemen a disservice by not letting them introduce themselves. Casey, let's start with you. Tell our audience who you are, where do you work, what do you do, and we'll kick it over to Malcolm. Thanks, Albert. It's great to be on. Great to be chatting about this. So good to see you again, Malcolm, as well. Yeah, my name's Casey Ellis, as, as you called out there, so I don't need to do that part again. Um, from the uh, the founder, chairman, and CEO of BugCrowd. Basically, BugCrowd, you know, what we did was to, to introduce the concept of connecting, you know, the white hat community, like this crowd of, of creative individuals that can answer security questions that have been waiting at the table, I think, at this point in time for, for you know, a number of decades, but have been disconnected from people that need help. You know, we started off that industry back in 2012. So... You know, that's commonly referred to or known as, a, as, as bug bounty programs and vulnerability disclosure programs. Um, in, in truth, we're, we're finding all sorts of different ways to take advantage of that resource and plug it into the problems that exist. But yeah, that's, that's what I do. And uh, that's why I'm here. Malcolm, how about you introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks. And, and great to be on with uh, both you, Albert and Casey. So currently, I'm a board member, advisor, coach, mentor, uh, dabble with a lot of security startups and, and a few others in the industry. Prior to that, I was chief security and trust officer with a web application security defense platform company for a little over a year. Prior to that, I was chief security and trust officer with Silence. And then prior to that, I spent my life at Intel. And uh, I was chief security and privacy officer at Intel. So spanned a, a wide range of, of fun and eclectic activities. So, Malcolm, you have a big swath of history in cybersecurity or cyber and security space. Casey, you're building, how would you describe it? Are you building like a marketplace almost of people that are good at, like, it's like I come to you to access the best talent for short-term projects. How should we best think of BugCrowd? In a sense, it's talent, but it's also just answers to questions. Like, you know, we're talking about AI and and its role, um, you know, computing and and the way that we... uh, extracts creativity from computer solutions that we've built has improved 
and continues to improve, but there's still this element of necessity behind access to human creativity. So, so really what you know, Bugcrowd does, it's almost like a knowledge platform. Like people have security questions that require a creative answer. We've got access to all of the different places that answer could exist. Our job is to put the question in the right place. So that's, that's you know, summing it up, I think, on a kind of conceptual level. Like practically what that looks like is, is vulnerability discovery in, in, in systems. That's a lot of what we do. You know, ranging from web applications right through to you know critical infrastructure. We've done work with Department of Defense and, and you know systems that belong to the Air Force. It's this you know very broad smattering of different technologies where we apply humans to come in and basically you know help people understand what risks they need to mitigate next. Because at this point in time, I feel like you know security is in table conversation. Like I think it's consensus that we need to do something. The question is what. Like, how do you, you know, get a creative input um, to help you prioritize and understand that risk so you can make that, make that sort of decision? All right. So that's a perfect segue. So let's dive in. Right before we started this roundtable discussion, I talked about how one of the biggest, most interesting things to most of our audience members, how is, I guess, the, the landscape of attacks changing? So when we first held our first episode, we talked about the Colonial Pipeline hack. The next thing that's happened more recently is we now see... You know, I saw this news and while this hasn't occurred yet, this is to me an indicator of where things are going. But Anonymous, of course, recently put out a video for those listening at the time of recording it was today. They put out a video today or yesterday that said, you know, that basically kind of threatened Elon Musk and Tesla and SpaceX potentially. It's not clear whether they're going to do something, but it does seem like foreign actors are attacking more often. And that is a big thing that is now happening. Of course, we're coming right off the heels of the solar winds attack. Different people are getting sued now for this. You know, this is this doesn't seem to be changing. You know, I'm gonna start with Malcolm. You've seen this over your time and career and your history. Is it just being reported more, or are there like more and more organized, sophisticated efforts that are now attacking companies? And I'd love to hear your perspective on why this continues to increase. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So go back on my Intel days. 20 years ago, I drew a, a picture that I called the perfect storm of risk <laughs> to explain how threats and vulnerabilities would affect information assets that were changing physically, logically, their usage model, exposing risk. My job was to put controls in place. And then I drew this hidden hand on this picture, starting with geopolitical, because nation states are both threat actors and threat agents adding to the cycle, but there are also legal and regulatory bodies that are driving additional levels of compliance and legal and regulatory risk. So you have this confluence of independent yet interdependent things that I theorized 20 plus years ago would create this perfect storm of risk. I think we're just playing, we're seeing it play itself out. You know, the reality is if it can execute code, it can execute malicious code, right? Whether it be an app, a device. And because of that urban sprawl of technology, and frankly, the job we've done in the security (laughs) development lifecycle to mitigate risk up front, and then the sloppy job we've done in the back end to operationalize security, we frankly are living in the mess that we've created for ourselves because of the poor economic incentives that, that have existed for the creators of technology and the operators of it to do something the right way and manage the risk better. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think you know the, the two kind of proof points of that being the root cause, one is that anonymous threatened Elon Musk, and it's a viable threat. Like, why is that? <laughs> Yeah, because they're not a nation state. That you know, that could be anyone doing that. But the fact that they've been emboldened to do it in the first place, and the fact that it's probably having an impact, kind of is symptomatic of the fact that we're not very good at this stuff. Like there, there is enough attack surface out there. There is enough debt 
kicking around for that to be a viable thing for them to say, even to begin with, right? I think beyond that, you know, one of the uh, the advisories that came out that was really interesting last year was was from Cicero and the NSA talking about uh, nation state use of, of Enday in coordinated attacks and like solar winds and, and different things like that are examples of you know how much more pervasive and kind of scattergun APT can be when they've got an objective. Um, I think prior to those kind of announcements, it was always seen as this very targeted, very unique niche thing that you had to be a certain type of organization to have to worry about. You know, what we're now learning is that, no, like they're economically rational in the same way that we are. And if you don't have to, you know, burn a $2 million ISO day to get the job done, like why not just download something from ExploitDB because that will probably still work, which is kind of the point. Like there's so much debt around out there that those kind of strategies for those focus still effective. That says something about where we're up to, I think, from, from a risk posture standpoint. What are your opinions on how modern day apps and companies are built too? Because it feels like we are increasing the vulnerabilities every single time because we rely on, think about like, like if I think of Mission, which is a small company, the amount of SaaS products we use is actually quite substantial. And we have absolutely push data through open APIs into each of these toolkits. And so effectively, you know, military style, you're only as strong as your weakest link. Like, we're probably, I don't know where it is. It's there for sure. Like, but that, that's everybody. And we're just a small company. And our company is only eight people. Like a, a giant company like a, you know, like a GE or something like that, where there's 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 employees. What is happening? We're, I'm, I'm curious on your perspective because it seems like there's more gateways being opened. I would assume that there are more keys to shut these gateways down, but it, it doesn't seem like that's the case. Like it just seems like there's increasing vulnerability inside of every business. I'd love to hear your perspectives on this. We'll start with Malcolm. Well, again, you know, you have this urban sprawl, right, that occurred. Yeah. And that's not only the data, the apps, the devices, the locations, but also the APIs and the connections and the data flows. That's certainly part of the problem. You know, on the, the app development side, though, again, this is where I think a lot of people have done better, particularly with things like bug crowd and, and vulnerability management programs and that upfront side of things. But the world that we live in, most people are still focused on minimal viable product. Minimal viable product is going to get you maximum security exposure, right? <laughs> well, well said. Incredible. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's just, you know, like I said, it's an economic incentive issue that causes people to be sloppy because they're not held accountable in the same way you would be in a physical product liability sense. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. I, I think... Um... This is something that um, I've done talks on for a while now. You know, where security's done ourselves a disservice as an industry is to go into people develop stuff and say, "Hey, you're an idiot. Like you screwed up, right?" And in the meantime, like we haven't necessarily built a platform or built a business or maintained those things. Like we haven't actually experienced from the offensive side the same economic imperatives and incentives for people that are deploying that code. So our position to say that is a little bit, I think, underinformed to begin with. But, you know, that's kind of the reality of the situation. Like builders don't think like breakers. They're not incentivized to do the same things. They're logically different. And that's just the fact. Like, I think we can reconcile those things. You know, it's a lot of what we do with BugCrowd. And, and honestly, I think a root cause of, of a lot of this stuff in the first place, the idea that, you know, people that deploy code don't necessarily believe in the boogeyman. So when they see a security control, that they can either suffer the inconvenience to implement or push the feature by the deadline. 
Like they're going to choose the latter because that's their job. And that's, you know, honestly, you see that not just in, I think, companies that are thinking through an MVP lens in the startup space. I think that affects the enterprise as well because everyone has those same motivations and the, those same incentives in place. Sure. Yeah. Well, and, and to your point, you know, I have this uh, framework that I uh, developed back years ago that I called my nine box of controls. One of the dimensions of the nine box of controls is control friction because controls are a drag coefficient. Yeah. They slow down people, data, business processes, chew up unnecessary compute cycles. But the, the design issue that we've got in the industry is that the practitioners in their enterprises are not held accountable to reducing that drag coefficient. Yeah. Hence, it causes their users of business to go around the control. And in the security software and device ecosystem, they just sell a product that also creates too much friction on the developers and on the users and stuff like that. And, and again, when, when there's friction and people go around the control, that generates risk. And since the security industry profits from the insecurity of computing, the more risk that occurs, the more the security industry grows. So again, getting back to an economic incentive, I would submit that the security industry doesn't have an, uh, an economic incentive by and large at a macro level to solve the problem. Interesting. Some are trying yeah. hard, but at a broad level, the industry itself doesn't give a shit about really solving the problem. Yeah. I mean, this is an inconvenient truth, but it's a product of mass. So I think actually rebutting that as a vendor on this call is impossible because what you've just laid out is literally the math of the situation. Like the more, you know, something that I throw out a lot with the team at Bugroud and with, with other people I speak to in, in the uh, security solutions space is the fact that this industry is a product of unintended consequence. Like we're not actually really meant to be here. And I think it's helpful to remember that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, a level of, it's a, it, like you said, it's a byproduct. It's a economic inefficiency. And unless we start dealing with it that way, we won't change the economic incentives across everybody who's touching it to do it the right way. Yeah, and that's where I that's where I keep bringing it back to this idea of the fact that error is human, like the fact that there will be like why do we exist? It's because people make mistakes, yeah, and because there are you know things that can be exploited as a product of those mistakes that you know the adversary like the idea of someone leaving the front door open and. and another person taking advantage of that predates the internet by a couple of thousand years. So like, this is not an internet thing. It's a human incentive thing. It's really like the nature of crime, the opportunity for crime, right? Yeah. So, okay, cool. Like that's what we've brought into our space. How do we create that awareness in a tech context? Because as you're building a product, as you're getting your MVP out to market, all you're thinking about is making that thing work and then getting it adopted. The fact that you can kind of gloss over these kind of inconvenient truths from my perspective, that's the root cause of a lot of the problems that we actually see in the market. And it's not about being perfect. It's about being just that little bit better, but ubiquitously in a way that makes it economically irrational for an attacker. If you're a developer or even a hardware architect, going back to my roots, you don't get demoted by creating a, a product that has a security flaw. You get promoted by having the functionality that can sell yeah. and getting a patent on that. And that's how you become a principal engineer. That's how you run engineering. There's no penalty for, as an engineering person, for the security flaws you might be creating in the product. Plus, risk is temporal. You might not find those security flaws till six months, a year, two years, three years down the road or longer. So I used to think, oh, we should go to the, I read the book Fairtax and I was like, oh, we should go to the world of Fairtax. It's, it's pretty simple. And then someone told me, well, it'll never happen because the system is incentivized to make the tax code as complicated as possible. 
so that you can constantly, if I'm a politician, say, I'm going to help you vote a certain way. And if you're in accounting, you need the law to change or software, software needs it to change. It's constantly updating, right? TurboTax can sell you a new version every year. Why? Because the laws change. Like you fundamentally can't use the version you just had, right? And so they described that way. And then someone said it. it's also, you've probably heard described the same way in the pharmaceutical world, right? That they're not really that incentivized to solve chronic disease. They're more about like having you just exist with a chronic disease. And so in a way, security application development, technology and advancement, the money rewards, as you suggested, Malcolm, if I can ship the best feature, if I can ship the best product, I win, right? I win, win more. And if I have security flaw in it, uh, maybe, uh, you know, Casey can fix that for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll find it. So, but, but again, it gets back to it gets back to the friction thing that we were talking about. If you can do it in a way that you know um, creates adherence to the business process. Again, you think of a I, I use this analogy of Formula One car, right? That everything is designed for velocity, right? Yeah. And and even the spoiler on the back, it creates friction, but that friction creates a downforce to create cohesion to the track. Yep. And the driver, if you think of them as the developer or the end user, how are we designing controls that create velocity towards their mission, their business objective? And if we can do that and reduce those frictions and do it the right way, it becomes a heck of a lot easier. Let's take a quick pause to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Now, Let's get back to the conversation. So let's get started down that path. How should products be developed? I mean, I'm curious, like what is something that's fundamentally that you, if you could, if you could redo it and say, hey, someone's going to give you, you know, infinite money or I don't know what you guys want, but infinite something, right? If you can just go back in, in time and fix this or these things, what were some things that you think fundamentally change about product development to because you were talking about, you know, the incentive structure is upside down. Is it fixable? That's, I guess, the major question. Is it fixable? And if it is, what needs to change? I'm not sure that infinite money is the place that you want to start there because you end up with a bigger perverse incentive on, <laughs> on the solution we came up with. But, uh, <laughs> All right, infinite money, throw that out. Whatever rewards incentive you want. If you had a chance, you got a chance to change how products are developed. This is one of the things. So, so you know, the listeners that don't understand how bug bounties work, really what the idea is that, is that you go out to the open internet and say, okay, if you found something and you, you report it to us, we'll pay you for that. Yep. And the proportion um, of your payment is going to be corollary to the impact of what you found. I think the thing that's uh, attracted me to this whole space in the first place is that to me, that reflects the economic incentives of the adversary about as closely as you're going to get yeah. on the white hat side. It's not perfect, but it's, it's getting pretty close, right? So those ideas of you know being able to build out um, feedback loops around you know how much does that cost? Like if we put out five bucks and we're getting hosed, what does that say about the cost to attack our business? Like how do we create that feedback loop as an organization? But then also I think on the, on the receiving side, make that not this you know kind of dirty laundry thing to be ashamed of. Going back to the whole to err as human thing, it's not about hitting people over the head with a stick. It's about saying, hey, here's where you can improve. Like, this is the cost of not improving. Like, some kid from halfway across the world just owned your stuff, which means his next door neighbor, who might be a bad guy, could do the same thing. Like, this is real, right? And I think for engineers, that revelation, that moment of, you know, this not being like this theoretical thing that they can just choose to ignore if they've got to push a product out by a date to hit a feature deadline, 
it's actually impactful to the user. That to me is a really powerful thing uh, to, to begin with. The other thing that I would say is, is with respect to vulnerability disclosure. Um, so the idea of, you know, the way that I talk about this is, is almost like a lightning rod, right? Like, you know, as a, as a company that helps organizations do vulnerability disclosures, what we're not saying to them is that we can prevent lightning. Like lightning is just a thing. It's going to do what it wants, right? So what you can do in response to that is to acknowledge the fact that that's true and then try to get that kind of impact away from where it's going to create damage and route it down to where you can deal with it, which is kind of how a lightning rod works. I think those sorts of ideas, in terms of getting that information back into the business itself, you know, it's a really valuable process to be able to actually identify what you need to fix next. But I think the broader thing is the idea that you need to, needed to put that thing up in the first place. Like the fact that you've even done that is an acknowledgement of the fact that, yeah, we're going to have issues. That's not because we suck. You know, it's not because we're not trying. It's not because we're terrible at security or that we're a bad company or anything like that. It's just a product of the fact that people are building our stuff. So like, let's acknowledge that and actually work with that. I think that kind of baseline. It's almost like, you know, the five stages of grief thing that, uh, that Katie, Katie Mo talks about sometimes, like the acceptance piece of that, where it's like, this is just a thing that we're going to have to deal with. Like if you can baseline around that, remove the stigma of when something goes wrong and just align around the fact that it's going to be a thing. So let's deal with it and let's learn from it. And let's try to produce its existence in the future. Like that to me is a good starting point, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, you know, and I think you said it well. And, and another way to rephrase it is you can't eliminate risk, just like we can't physically, logically, you know, earthquakes, right? So you have a, a building code yeah. that you design to to mitigate certain um, wind shear and, and earthquakes and fires and stuff like that. We don't have the equivalent of that professionalism in the broad IT space. The other thing, you know, that I would would say there's a difference between incentives and motivations. And you can incent somebody, but it doesn't mean they're motivated, right? It's the difference between somebody who's compliant and somebody who cares, right? I'd rather have somebody who cares than somebody who's compliant. And I think we have to work on both sides of the incentives we were talking about on the economic side, but also the motivations. And we've got to start putting more human stories on it and looking at the fact that people's lives are at stake. And I, I posted something on this the other day on, on ransomware and pay or not pay, because it's a tough dilemma, right, to pay or not pay. But I said, in the organizations that I've run and what I've always had as a set of principles defined ahead of time, would we pay or would we not pay? And under what circumstances, who's the decision maker, who has input, all that stuff, just like you would in a physical kidnapping and ransom, right? This is just a logical one. But you have to recognize if you're paying, you don't know who's on the other side of it. And you might be aiding in human trafficking. You might be funding a terrorist. You might be funding a drug lord. And for the reality of it, a lot of people think I'm, I'm you know, I overplay it. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago. And I think it was the book Future Crimes that Mark Goodwin wrote and former Interpol guy and stuff like that. There was some traceability for the Mumbai bombings in 2008 that, that indicated about $2 million for the funding of that physical terrorist event came from cybercrime. Dang. And so if we Dang. all looked at it and said, our sloppiness, even in managing InfoSec in a mom and pop mid-retail company could lead to nickels and dimes that flows to an event like that, we would act differently. And we would demand more yeah. of the security industry to sell us better products. Yeah. And 
like in terms of the, the tolerance to those kind of controls being put in place? Because I think that whole idea around, okay, is a solution to ransomware to make payment illegal? Like that's obviously a fragile proposition, but I think it's getting at the right part of, of the value chain for the attacker. Mm. I do feel like a lot of the conversations around how to mitigate the threat side of this are starting to happen in the right direction, but it does leave open the question, like why is that so easy in the first place? Like if, you know, and, and assuming that we can you know, mitigate on that end of things on the threat side, what will they come up with next? Yeah, and every press announcement on a breach a sophisticated actor. Really? It wasn't that flippant sophisticated. I mean, you did a sloppy job and we then try and cast it off to deflect liability rather than say, let's go do attribution to the control that failed. Instead, we try and do attribution to the threat actor and threat agent. That's a distraction from what I'm responsible for as a chief security officer, which is managing the vulnerability of my organization. And anything that is not focused on that is a distraction to what I can manage. No, so you guys, you guys are starting to get fired up, which I love, right? It was a good discussion. You know, I want to dive into something that you guys both have said independently a couple different times, but you said about like fundamentally incentive structure is what needs to change. How do you envision incentive structure changing? You kind of hinted at it just a moment ago, Casey, where it's like, hey, maybe it's a legal thing where actually the laws have to change to mitigate this type of behavior. Talk a little about how, how should companies get paid, not paid, like, well, that's usually in incentives. When I think incentives, I usually think money, but it might not be money. Like, give me a flavor for what you're thinking of how, if we fundamentally, as a as a people, as a human, as business operators, thought differently, we could probably mitigate more risk. Like you said, not eliminate, but mitigate more. Like, reduce it some. Yeah, no, definitely. And to your point around like mitigate, not eliminate. I think you know legal changes are an aspect of it. They're not a silver bullet. Um, often they're treated like that by by legislators. Yes, and it does come back to this fact that bad guys are innovative and they have to eat. Yeah. So even if that law works, you're going to have to deal with something that comes after the thing that you've solved. So I don't see that as a solution that exists in perpetuity. It's going to be, you know, effectively an arms race for as long as, you know, crime exists and the internet can facilitate that. My personal belief on this, you know, sometime between now and the heat death of the universe, um, the consumer is actually going to care uh, about whether or not they're going to get hacked buying a product, right? <laughs> that hasn't happened yet. I feel like we're trending in that direction. There's enough narrative around that to start to, you know, I, I feel like, you know, at this point in time, an interesting thing about the bug crowd story is that we actually landed in the US uh, the same month that Snowden did his disclosures around around NSA, which it might be colored a little bit in, in hindsight by, by what has happened since with bug crowd. But I've been in security as a career since high school, which is a long time before we, we landed in the US, right? And you know, to me, like that was when people actually started to consider the, the possibility that they should actually care about the stuff. Like prior to that, it didn't really, it wasn't really a thing. Mm-hmm. And then, like the next year, you've got sixty percent of the U.S. population getting their credit card breached. So, like now, hacking happens to me. Yep. The year after that, it's OPM, it's Ashley Madison. Okay, so now it hurts. Um, you know, twenty sixteen, you've got the attacks on the election. So now, like my country's getting hacked. And it's just gotten progressively more kind of dystopian since then. You know, 2020, it's, you know, my five-year-old's responsible for my corporate attack surface, 2021, like ransomware's eating the world, basically. And, and um, <laughs> yeah, my five-year-old's gone off and, and, and basically progressed their, uh, their influence on my corporate attack surface. So, like, we're in this position now where that's not just a security conversation. That's something that the layperson is thinking about. Yeah. I think if we get to the point where, you know, Pat Gray was talking with Tim Watts, who's a politician here in Australia, 
around this idea of retail politics. Like once you've got an issue at the point where the layperson is voting based on that, or their vote is at least partly influenced by that, at that point, you know, the overall incentive around the reason for that problem existing in the first place starts to get shifted by the political agenda. I think that's going to be the thing that ultimately shifts this. I don't know how long that's going to take, to be honest. And like, there's, there's different things that I think can be done to influence it. Going back to what I was saying before around you know, some errors, I feel that the security industry just at large has made. Um, we've made it all about the stick. I think it should also be about the carrot. So how do we make it attractive to do this well? Like how do we, you know, if, if someone's walking into a Best Buy and choosing between this router and that router, all things, you know, considered otherwise being equal, um, if they know that one's more secure than the other, what gets them to the point where they choose that other thing? Hmm. It's those sorts of things that I think create, you know, like we need to make this about actual enablement of the business, not just being an insurance policy and trying to hold off, you know, a bad day. Malcolm, yeah. you know, I was thinking about that with uh, the new Apple campaign. They're very much focused. And in this case, it's not security, but they, they call it privacy, right? It's about privacy, right? That's like the principal feature of their phone that they're touting more so than anything else. Because like, kind of like what you said, a better camera, a better screen, all these things are becoming, I don't know, they're, they're relatively comparable, very comparable. So then they're saying, I'm more private than the other. Definitely. I think with that, my view is the layperson confuses security and privacy just in general when it comes to this space, right? Like it's interchangeable. That's not a the dumb thing. It's just confusing. Yeah. So I can understand why that happens. Right. And as an intrinsic value to a consumer, privacy is more relevant more quickly than security. Like security is this abstract thing. What if nothing bad happens, right? Yeah. It's like insurance. Whereas with privacy, oh, this this is my personal information. Like I don't want that to go where I don't want it to go. That's a value add for me. I'm going to choose that thing. Yeah, I was going to. I was going to say, you know, it's it's interesting that you were talking about those differentiators for consumers, and I completely agree with you, Casey. You know, a couple of years ago, I, I gave testimony at the U.S. Senate Commerce and Technology Committee on the promise and perils of emerging technology, and one of the senators shortly afterwards introduced a security bill to basically do the equivalent of. Energy star ratings for mm. cybersecurity products, or you know, the the safety crash equivalent, couldn't get it off the ground. And actually, some of the big tech that was on that panel was against it. Why? Because <laughs> it would mean more work for them, right? So we we've got to do those type of incentives to make it easier for consumers. And then I think we also have to look at it. And I'm not big on regulation, but regulation done right will help with some of these things. So think of, you know, again, 15, 16 years ago, Sarbanes-Oxley, we had a bunch of financial integrity and financial reporting issues in the US. And then all of a sudden, the CEO, the CFO, the general counsel, the executives had to attest to their internal controls on financial reporting and financial integrity. Not that they wouldn't have errors in their numbers occasionally, but they wouldn't be material or impactful yeah. right, to the shareholders. We could do the same thing for cybersecurity and say, you have to attest to your processes in the design and development of technology you're selling and to the, the technology that you're operating as a business. If we did that and held people accountable to that attestation with the level of personal liability, you'd create a lot of incentive differences to do it right. And it doesn't necessarily mean spending more money. It just means spending it in the right places in the right way to affect change. So the way, the way that it was described, we talked about you know not too long ago and earlier in the conversation, how the modern enterprise or modern business 
relies on so many different technology partners. That's just the reality of it. We rely tremendously on many, many interconnected technology partners. And if we were to increase the culpability, the responsibility, or however that works, like you mentioned, the rating systems, doesn't your entire chain have to be rated the same way? Otherwise, aren't you just as, aren't you weakened by whoever is that back to that original, like whoever's the weakest link in your stack? Isn't that the problem then? Not necessarily. Being vulnerable and being exploitable are two different things, right? And so it depends upon the context of the vulnerability in the context of the enterprise, along with other mitigating controls to whether or not that's exploitable and can create material or significant harm. Right. And if we did it the same way you do for for financial side of it, material and significant harm, well, we would clear the clutter of all these ankle biter things because (laughs) just by dealing with better processes, we'd get rid of that stuff. And then we'd focus on the things that's going to really bite us and bite us hard. And if we did that, maybe we would have not had the colonial pipeline. Maybe we wouldn't have had a solar winds. Maybe we wouldn't have some of these bigger things that are starting to create a systemic societal risk. Yeah, agreed. I mean, yeah, to me, there's, there's that part that's talking about the stick and the regulatory side of things. I, I think the other piece of that is to be able to communicate that to the consumer. So it's not just you've, you've violated regulation. Like, how do I explain to a layperson that I'm actually doing this well? And how is there you know, accountability around the ways that I'm doing that? So that it's not just I take security seriously. Like there's you know, things that, that, are, that are practical and that have some degree of consensus around them that makes them, you know, understandable to someone that's making a choice between one product and the next. The more it can be simplified down at that point. Cars are highly complex with a lot of integrated systems and parts. Cars are a great example, yeah. And, you know, airplanes, I mean, trains, there's so many different physical analogies of things that have a lot of complexity to them. Yeah, But we reasonably manage the risk pretty well. And yeah, injury happens and unfortunately people die. But by and large, considering the amount of that stuff occurring, we're not seeing catastrophic things day in and day out. We were in the yeah. 50s before Nader pushed seatbelts, right? Yeah, yeah. And stuff like that. So we've got to, we've got to think you know, differently on, on how we do what I call being a choice architect. So again, I was in Australia actually a few years ago and and somebody had asked me how I define my role. And I'm like, I'm a choice architect. I'm architecting choices for the business. Just some of those choices I get to make, some of the CIO does, some of the CTO does, some of the CEO, some of the board. If I architect choices better, right, then we will end up with better decisions, which will result in lower risk. All right, you got me convinced. Your Morningstar concept, I like it. I'm thinking, I was thinking about that as you guys were talking about how, like you mentioned for aviation or vehicles, like we try to treat the vehicle, we hold Toyota responsible for its entire supply chain. You know, like if something failed on my car, I'm like, well, who made that part? I don't think that way. I think <laughs> Toyota, you, you built this car, you're responsible. You know, I want, if there's a mechanical failure, it's your responsibility to fix this. Or give an example, look at the airbag issue, right? Yeah. A safety mechanism that had a problem and Takata got crucified before it. Well, guess what happens in the security industry? All of that has failed and the stocks of the companies who sold product that didn't work goes up. In what world does that make sense that we celebrate the security industry's failure by increasing their valuations? Yeah, that goes back, I think, Malcolm, to your point before around um, you know, the first incentive around cybersecurity actually solving this problem. Yeah. Like we want to you know, do the things that we're asked to do, but the whole idea of being able to actually go in and solve it at a fundamental level, there's, there's this 
sort of almost threshold that exists. We don't want to do it too well um, from a pure economic standpoint. And that ultimately goes back to integrity. Like that's, I'm very aware of that concept as a vendor. I work to, you know, execute on the solution in spite of that. And, and there's others that do the same thing. But, you know, the fact that that exists as a perverse incentive, I, I don't think is something that should be ignored there. All these things that you guys are saying, exactly. I'm thinking it's, it's changed the framework of how I envision or how I, I think of other companies because, you know, what you brought some great elements during this conversation that get me thinking about and relating it to other industries. And uh, one thing I kept thinking about when you talk about mitigating risk is actually like this concept of how retailers budget for shrinkage. They just budget, meaning they, they actively invest in stopping it. But at no point do retailers assume it's never going to happen. They always assume it's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When I was in the retail credit industry before graduate school, I managed May Department Southern California credit operations. We maximized net income with 2% bad debt, right? And we would play with the credit ratings daily. If revenue was running light and bad debt was running low, we would loosen credit. Why? Because we maximize net income with a 2% bad debt. People couldn't pay in fraud made up that 2% bad debt. You build it into your business model and plan ahead. Right. I think like tying, tying cybersecurity with automotive, because automotive is a great example of, of an industry that's safety critical and, and has like clear regulations around it and, and clear kind of grading and scores and different things like that. But also I think a really clear impact of what happens when you get it wrong. Yeah, Tesla had a uh, had a vulnerability come in four years ago, five years ago, that they were able to basically ingest, like remediate, regression test, you know, deploy into a test fleet, and then deploy into their entire fleet over the air in eleven days from from receiving that report. Yeah, bananas. That didn't happen by accident. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that, that's a whole lot of planning ahead that goes into that, which kind of goes back to Malcolm what you were just saying around. You know, assumed risk and how you build that into your business model, that's a cost for them. So they've had to plan that again, like maintaining all of that infrastructure to make that work is expensive. But what they've been able to do is to reduce, you know, the cyber risk to the users, yep. reduce the physical risk as a consequence of cyber risk, just in general. This didn't actually speak to that, but hypothetically, if it did, you know, the same, the, the problem would have been solved in the same way. And I think as a result, you know, this is kind of going back to my whole thing around how do you make security sexy for the consumer, right? And you tell that story to someone who's had their vehicle recalled for a similar problem, they're going to start to think that Tesla's a more secure product. So like in, in that example, you've got almost, I think, a pattern of, of how to you know, increase usability as you do this stuff in a way that's relevant to the user, solve the actual problem, but then also make it attractive enough for people who want your stuff more. Well, I think your point earlier, or both of your points about the consumer demand side, that's going to start happening because I have noticed myself, I don't like updating products, right? I think it's annoying. And there were there was like a wave of products, and you you absolutely know this, that like for some reason, like they couldn't update your firmware over the air. Like you had to get your USB to like download the yeah. newest packet off your computer. Before they built that and put it in. Yeah. Yeah. So, but... It has gotten to the point where, as a like you mentioned before with Tesla, um, I, I've seen it. Well, we obviously experience it with our phones now. It's like this idea that you need to be a business constantly innovating and delivering updates. I think that is absolutely a brand desire. Now, it hasn't quite, I don't think, transformed into like, hey, this is more secure. Like you kind of mentioned before, security and privacy, people kind of confuse the two things. But 
I, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if not in the not so distant future, it becomes a major critical factor in decision making for purchasing products where it's like, hey, the, how secure is this product? Yeah. Some brands, it's, I think some of the, the more adventurous folks who take a first mover position on it will do well because they'll be able to establish themselves as the security brand yeah. that cares about the consumer, cares about the consequences and impact to them. And then, you know, and again, like you mentioned, the confusion between security and privacy. I've always um, said that security and privacy are like two magnets. Turn one way, they're perfectly binding because you need good security to have privacy. But security can also encroach upon privacy if it's not done right. And privacy can stay sometimes too academic, too legal subjective, yeah. and not be practical enough. So when you do that, it's like having the magnets turned and then they polarize each other. But we've got to do it's a design and architectural issue to bind them. And if you start with that as a goal that you're trying to achieve security and privacy, we will actually lower the risk on both sides of it. Yeah. There you go, gentlemen. I appreciate you guys joining us today on our security series. Thanks for sharing some of the insight and some of the vision you have for what's happening in the current marketplace as well as what you think needs to happen outside the present day environment to further enhance mitigation in security. And I get, you know, we talked all about a lot of topics, but I got to close with one thing. You know, we keep hearing about artificial intelligence. And one of the things that has been postulated a lot, and I'd I'd love to hear your perspective on this, is AI ever going to be so smart where it can stop any attack where I don't need, you know, no offense to Casey here, but where I don't need your team. Like I literally have an AI in my network system constantly looking for bugs, able to detect and fix, you know, irregularities. I don't know. How far away is that? Or is that never going to happen? Because the the bad actors, as you said, in the, in the history of time, as we also talked about in this uh, conversation, there's always been a bad guy. There's never been, <laughs> never have humans lived in peace. Like, oh, everyone's kumbaya. We all love each other. There's always been a bad guy. And there's always going to be, we can assume, smart bad guys. Is AI ever going to be able to actually protect us from any bad actor? Or is it always just going to be, the, the race just continues. We're always going to have someone trying to trump it. Yeah, the way that I talk about it, it's like the uh, the Iron Man suit. Yeah, like the human without the suit is weak. The suit without the human is dumb. <laughs> if you view, I, and this is like excluding Jarvis existing yet, which is kind of your question. <laughs> so if you go back to that kind of construct, the idea that you know AI and, and machine learning, these different kind of you know computer learning things that we've got to work with now in in cybersecurity and right across the board, they're levers. They're not a replacement in my mind, for human intelligence. Mm-hmm. To your question around, like, will the singularity, which is, you know, kind of how people talk about it, um, replace uh, human creativity when it comes to defense? Like, that's the answer that I give to that is that, you know, if and when that happens, we're going to be worried about Skynet, not these conversations. And, and I'm going to be thinking about how to hack that stuff <laughs> to make sure that humans stay safe. So like, that's, to me, kind of this abstract... Yeah, I do think it's possible just just from like a theoretical computer science standpoint, like you look at quantum and and different things that could enable that actually change the game in terms of how that stuff works. I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. I don't think we're anywhere close to it at this point in time. And that would be my answer. There you go. Mine would be anything that executes code can execute malicious code. AI is made up of machines that has code that has systems. So AI itself will also be manipulated and compromised and you can manipulate. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that, that I think Microsoft had a bot 
that people were playing with by doing things that then turned around and, and put profanities and other things yep. out there. Start swearing at all the Xbox players or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, for me, I'm a former finance guy, right? An IT finance guy, an IT procurement guy. Yeah. Automation's job is to increase our effectiveness and efficiency. Yep. AI is the same thing. It's the same thing as is that exoskeleton suit. If it's increasing your effectiveness and efficiency, do it. If it's not, don't buy the marketing bullshit. And, and that would be that would be the you know the, the golden takeaway I think from that. Like it still gets misrendered today. Like there there was a, a, a I think a spike in that as as AI kind of first got on the scene and people started talking about it where it was kind of oversold in that sense. Yeah. People expected it to just take care of everything for them. And then that over time was proven not to be what it actually did. So that's good. But it's still, I think, perceived, you know, a lot of the time in that sort of way. Like this is a replacement for humans. Artificial intelligence is sort of in the name, right? And, you know, to be able to double click on that a little bit, say, what are we actually talking about here? What does it actually do? What is it useful for? And making sure that everyone's clear on that side of things, I think is really important. Yeah, going back to what you were saying, Martin, around, uh, sorry, Malcolm, around the, um, the vulnerabilities in ML and AI itself. Yeah, you know, we're starting to really dig into educating people on how to do adversarial ML testing. So, so like this idea, there was a, there was a really funny POC that happened in the Bay Area, you know, seven or eight years ago at this point, where people tricked GPS on, on a certain traffic system to reroute traffic on the peninsula and it worked. Yeah, there's a more recent example where literally someone got a whole bunch of phones, put them in a little trolley, walked it really slowly across the bridge and simulated a traffic jam in the same way and was successful in that, diverted traffic. And that was that was an attack, like it's low tech, right? But in terms of the concept that it's proving, that's yeah, that's where you know some of the weaknesses exist in these types of things. Yeah, it got many, many machines to behave a different way. Yeah, it's untrusted input. Yeah. No, well, and you're you're exactly right. I I Used as an analogy several years ago in a speech, because you know cement providers are starting to put sensors in cement, right, to aid in maintenance and traffic routing and all that stuff. And I talked to the CTO of a cement company. I'm like, "How are you dealing with the security of this?" And he's like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> I'm like, "What do you mean? What do I mean?" It's like you know, and I'm like, "Look, if I can play with the flow of that data, yeah, right. you know." And this was after the Boston bombings. It's like, imagine I I want to redirect traffic towards a kinetic event. Yeah. I could do that and utilize flaws in the logic or the technology and move traffic towards something rather than what it's intended for. If I knew how to manipulate it. It's like the principal technology every spy movie uses, right? To like reroute the red lights and green lights to get getaway routes. To fly south. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I look at ML from, from like my viewpoint, you know, what we've seen with, with bug crowd is that the, uh, we call it the oh moment, like the, the degree to which that exists in a particular category of technology tends to be fairly proportional to how that category is adopted in market, right? And when you think about ML, we've just gone and slammed it across everything we can think of. Yeah. And there's starting to be evidence of that, you know, not having been necessarily a, a thoughtful process. Like the flash crash of, the flash crash of, of 2008, I think it was, where, you know, high-speed traders which are ultimately like this is early ML before you know, Silicon Valley got a hold of it and started to market it, right? Like it's a similar sort of concept. And that got games and exploited and tanked the NASDAQ. This can go wrong because people just haven't thought through the unintended consequence. That's always going to exist. 
Like anytime people design stuff, that possibility is always there. I think this is no exception to that. Casey Malcolm, I appreciate you guys joining us today on our security series. Thanks for sharing your insight, your career, and your perspectives on what's happening in the climates of cybersecurity today. I hope you had a good time on the show. Any last words you have for our audience members? I always say a fool with the tool is still a fool. <laughs> That's a pretty good landing spot. Honestly, you know, my my kind of inverse of that is that, you know, human creativity is intractable to cybersecurity. I'm biased in saying that, you know, given what I do for work, but part of the reason I do what I do for work is because I believe that. That's why I founded the company. I agree with both of you. Listen, I don't believe that AI machines can ever solve all the problems. I believe we always need a human trying to solve a puzzle or whatever problem is being presented with us. I look at it from the perspective of me just trying to change a flight through those automation systems. It's like virtually impossible for anyone who's ever done it. Like, you know, what is your locator number? G, D, B, 4. And it's like, I don't understand. It's like, damn it. Like, we're so far away. We're so far away from something being predictive, analytical. You know what I mean? Like, I think I agree with you guys. These technologies have come a long way, but there's still a long ways to go. And I just don't see a space where the computer solves everything. It just, I don't don't see it because people will always find a way I can think around it. <laughs> so in the meantime, people finding a way is part of the solution. That's that's it. That's where I was getting to with that. Like the whole idea of you know, subjectivity, context, application of risk, prioritization, getting ahead of what the attackers are going to do and where they're going to be most effective. That's going to be a part of our, our day job, I think, for a long time to come. Exactly. Plus the incentives and value systems for people to find and find ways to close these loops. That's exactly it. Gents, I appreciate you joining me today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for being part of the security series. Thanks for having us. Thanks. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.